going through his work phone, I realized it was about $50,000 of uh, money that had been just siphoned out. Welcome back to another episode of the Skid Steer Nation podcast. As always, I am your host, Ryan. And before we get introducing our guest today, I just want to take one moment. If you have been listening to the podcast, enjoying the content and the stories of the entrepreneurs we've been had on there, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it at and do me a favor and share it on social media platforms so that we can get some exposure. As you know, we collect no marketing money from this podcast. We are doing it all for you. Now I do push attachments from Skids to Your Nation, but that is it. So with no further ado, let's jump into this week's guest. Guys, get ready to be kind of blown away. It's a pretty incredible story. Our guest today is Reese Alley. He's kind of an unstoppable force. He and his partner own Adams and Alley. They specialize in stormwater and infrastructure construction and repair. Here's the kicker. Reese got started at the age of 15, hustling to earn money for a car, developed it into a landscaping business, had employees at the age of 16, and now he's at the ripe old age of 22 and a CEO of a company doing more than $4 million annually. This is an amazing journey of a young entrepreneur. Parents, this is a show that you should have your kids listen to. Sometimes hearing a story from somebody a little bit more relatable in age or not their parents could help inspire, motivate, and provide some practical tips for them to get out there and carve their space in the world. So with no further ado, Reese, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me, man. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, this is this is going to be pretty exciting. So, um, yeah, it's I and we got to start right at the top, man. Fifteen years old, and you're hustling out there. And just give us a little bit of background story on that, and like, what was your motivation for that, and and where did it kind of take you over the next 12, 18 months? Absolutely. So originally, it was just a way to save up and get a vehicle. I think everybody starts in the same boat when they're 14 or 15 and they're looking at getting into a, you know, the very first vehicle, a slice of freedom. And I grew up in a, a fairly nice area, but you know, both my parents worked and it was sort of up to me to get a vehicle and I had to save up for that, obviously. And so I tried to interview at Chick-fil-A and Publix in my area. I got turned down because I didn't have a car. And the only other option there was just banging on every door in the neighborhood and seeing who would let me do something for $10 an hour or 20 bucks or hundred bucks or whatever. And that's kind of where it all started. And it spiraled up from there. Yeah. I, I mean, you hear so many stories of young kids, like either newspaper routes or mowing grass. So is that kind of the avenue you went into is the grass mowing at that age? Yeah. It all started as just a landscaping business. So we would just trim bushes and cut grass and stuff like that. When I was 15, obviously didn't have a car yet. And so there was a friend of mine who's a year older that had his license and had a pickup truck. It was like a 06 Silverado, just single cab. And so we would split the money and I would get all the jobs and he'd drive us around. And that that's how it originally started. You know, that never went past the age of 15 as far as that arrangement. But um, that was originally how I got started and doing stuff that I couldn't walk to in the yeah, neighborhood. That, that's that hustle, man, that kids need to have like, hey, a little sacrifice of cash for the ability to make some money. You know, it's not all handed to us. You got to make arrangements sometimes with some other people to get things done. And it's rare to hear somebody at 15 that has the the foresight to say, hey, I'll do the hard work on the back end. You split the work in the front end and we'll split the profits equally. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Pretty cool. So, yeah. So 16. I, yeah. I think I, I think I found I read somewhere that you had some employees and you were trying to figure out payroll and HR. 
Yeah, I think payroll and HR probably came a little bit later. I don't think anybody knows that taxes are at 15 or 16. If yeah. you do, you were farther along than I was. But it was just collecting checks and cash and envelopes and stuff like that. I've still got a bag of checks from that time period where it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them of just little $20, $30, $40 that are fun to look at now. But as that scaled up, you know, when I was 16, I did get a couple of guys that started working with me just after school on weekends and all day during the summer. And that's was the original operation. You know, we would mow like three or four days a week and then do install jobs on the last day. And then I would always work Saturday and Sunday. And that's how that started. And from that point, that was like the first organization that I ever had of any kind of consistent business. And that blew up to about 50 or 60 accounts. Uh, a little over 50 of those were yearly contracts. And so we would it'd just be a little bit cheaper per month price and we do it all year. And later on, when I was 17, I sold those accounts to, that's how I got out of the first business, to a friend who's in the area who's still operating his business today and just sold those to him. And because they were yearly, they were sellable and we, I could get something out of them, which was nice. That was a hidden benefit that came out later. And then from that point, that's when I got into my first, and this is all 100% me. There were no partners at any point like that. And at that point, I used that to get into uh, excavation, grading, stuff like that, which is eventually where I niched down into drainage and water control, stuff like that. Nice. So 17 years old and you're starting an excavation company. Yes. Yeah. Safe to assume that one of the big hurdles for you was customers looking at you and saying, what in the world do you know? about grading or drainage? Yeah, I think nobody really cared while we were in maintenance and doing those kind of small ticket stuff because there's not really anything you can do to mess up somebody's house on a on things that are less than a thousand bucks. You're not going to bust somebody's septic tank trimming bushes. But once you do get into the higher ticket items that are 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 and above, people start really considering that because it's a significant investment for them and they want to know it's going to someone that's going to take care of them. And so out of that fear of not getting those projects because of my age, I think I just went so far into the extra and second and third mile to make sure the communication was perfect and as good as it could possibly be, and that everything was as professional as it could possibly be, my contracts and my uh, and anything I would give customers. I was very cognizant of the fact I was young, and so trying to overcompensate for all of that um, ended up developing a, a pretty significant advantage, in my opinion, of some of the professional aspects where other people might lack that could be 50 or 60 or 70 years old that are, I guess, the older experienced people. So I gained a lot of traction there just by overkilling on those things rather than trying to rely on just the same things everybody else was, just going the extra mile. And uh, they they will overlook that, I promise. Uh, and this, and if anyone listening to multiple episodes, like this has to sound like a beating a dead horse comment, but being professional, answering the phone, walking through the steps of the project and being available. I'm telling you, you're 80% of the head of the curve. Mm-hmm. 100%. It's the, it's the, and it's the quickest thing you can change as a business owner. Like there's no investment. It takes you zero time to answer the phone call. You don't have to build a website. And I even tell guys, put another shirt in your truck so you don't walk in filthy when you go do estimates after doing a job. And you'd be shocked. Yeah at the outcome. Yeah. And even if you don't have a, you don't have to have an $80,000 F-250 to go mm-hmm. to a job site, even if it's an older vehicle, just keep it clean, keep it presentable. Don't have bottles falling out of the t- truck when you get out on a job site. So yeah. that, that kind of stuff matters. 
It does. <clears throat> you know, we always say that it's like looking into a mirror. You want to work with like-minded people. And if you walk up to a nice home and they've taken mm -hmm. good care of it and you walk up looking unprofessional and like you just got out of bed, they don't want you on your property. 100%. And, you know, granted, you might look like that after working on their property all day, sweating in the heat, but they don't want they don't want you first impression being that. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, that's good, good advice right there. Um, and it's and to me that what your story is saying is that professionalism and that communication. I mean, it overcame age and the age is usually a stigma that's very difficult to overcome. I owned my first business at 25 and I didn't have any respect in the industry for the first five years. Yeah, it's tough to get around, but I do believe if you overkill and you go the extra and second and third mile, then it will pay off eventually and, and people will give you a shot. It did take me nine months to sell my first install job. I will. I do want to point that out. I mean, it wasn't a from the time that I was trying to transition out of maintenance. It took nine months to sell a sod job, which was my first. That was my first job in the thousands. Okay. And what we ended up doing a lot of. But it took a long time because until you win one or two, you really don't know how to price anything or what's competitive or what's too high. And it's, it's, you got to go at least far enough to get a couple wins because there's no data otherwise. But yeah, it will eventually Absolutely. come around. Absolutely. So at 17, you're doing sod installs, you're transitioning to excavation. When when would you consider yourself like a legitimate excavation company? At what age and what were you doing? I would say probably 18. So the first, the best month I did when I was 18 was 42,000. And that was, it was a mix of retaining wall projects and then grading jobs and sod jobs, which when I say excavation company, I don't believe, I don't believe we're an excavation company now. I mean, we're a, a stormwater business, but obviously excavation comes in all shapes and sizes within that industry. So to answer that question, I would say 18 is when I really started using heavy, I was using heavy equipment, being skid steers and many excavators on every job. And now we have bigger stuff, like it's 45, 50, 60,000 pound machines. However, at that time, that was about the age that I started using that stuff full time. And that was still all rentals and things like that. And then when I was eight, uh, 19, right after I turned 19 was when I bought my first skid steer. And that was a, a TL-10. Nice. Buying the skid steer, what was the deciding factor for you? Like, what, At what point did you say, okay, it's time to? It was 100% ego and wanting to have a machine and put my <laughs> logo on it, to be honest. Uh, I had, at that time, it was in January. It was late January that year, which is a stupid time to buy a machine, in my opinion, for my situation. And I had more than four weeks of jobs sold out. And I thought there was just no turning back, you know, springs a few months away and it's time to go spend $80,000. And so that's what I did. And I, I don't want to say I just threw it out there. It's a program where you can lease to own. And so if you know you're going to buy it, you do put a little money down. And then it's like a, if you rent it for six months and then it'll go to equity if you do buy the machine, but there is a little bit of skin in the game, but either way, not to get too in, in depth about that, that was the decision. And I, I think purchasing that machine, my payment was like, 2000 some dollars a month for that first six months before I bought it. And I had already been renting machines for a long time. And so the fear of not being able to buy it at the end of the six months was so pressing. I think it was just working nights and weekends and all over the place trying to keep the thing moving. So that was a, it was a great spur in my side as far as getting started. But if I had to do it again, I would have rented a heck of a lot longer. I think it was premature, but it, it was a great machine. 
Yeah, I'm a firm believer, though, that like when you're about 80% of where you're comfortable to like make the jump, whether it's buying equipment or going full time, mm-hmm. make the decision and go do it. And I call it burning the boats. Like you get rid of all the backup yep. plans and like you, you have no option but success. And it does. It spurs you along. Like, you know, maybe you would have done those extra five or 10 hours a week if you were just renting and you didn't need it. Yeah. It's painful to watch it sit. That's yeah, for sure. it, it really is. It really is. So what got you into stormwater? Like where, what, why did you pick that niche? So one of my original mentors and to now who I'm partnered with in one of the businesses today, he, he was the one that one convinced you to buy a Takeuchi because he had a connection there. And he was also in stormwater at that time. He was running probably like 1.2 million a year and had been doing that steady for a long time. And he was just doing drainage and he did some homeowner jobs and things like that. But a lot of it was for associations and engineers and things like that. The engineers working for the owners and a lot of it was in stormwater. And I was still all in residential at that point. And there were the problems that I had coming up was, I think, residential. And this can be an advantage and a disadvantage, depending on if you know how to use it. But there's lots of opinions in residential, right? <laughs> and so opinions are expensive and, and abrasive when you're trying to get jobs done. And so, you know, rather than doing like, uh, you know, patios or walls, you know, we might bust up a brand new retaining wall and it looks fantastic, but they didn't know that there's going to be a different batch and the colors like two shades off and now they want their money back and just stuff like that. If his logic was with drainage, that if it's underground, nobody can complain about it. And so that was the whole logic. And then, so I was just thinking to myself, well, that's time to get niche down and go to drainage. And that's what I did. And I think that's rain true, but I will put a comment on that. I think residential, I've been talking with a lot of guys about going from residential and everybody wants to get into commercial because they see all these super big ticket projects. And I got a signature on a retaining wall in a customer's backyard, totally residential, no, nobody else involved, just a customer. Now we had an engineer involved, but it was a $525,000 project in a customer's backyard. And it's, that's the biggest residential project that I've ever done. I've done bigger commercial, but that's the biggest residential. And the expectations that were set are absolutely bulletproof. And that will be an advantage on that job. And I think people get the wrong rap with residential because they don't manage expectations and they start blaming it on the customers, which is what I did for years. Yeah. But uh, you, you do understand that if you, if you learn how to manage those things, it can be a tremendous advantage. No, absolutely. And I'm a firm believer in that you have to have a niche. So my, I want to kind of take a half a step back when you made the decision to like be in a specific niche and focus on one specific type of problem, what did you notice with your business? Well, first and foremost, we started getting a lot more of those jobs for one thing, but on the jobs that we would go to, I still took things on the side. And like, if we were just doing drainage at that time, then I, we still took walls and things like that just to keep things moving. But when we started to only become like a drainage company on jobs where there was a lot of drainage, it was so much easier to sell myself at a higher price and set those kinds of expectations and differentiate myself because they might've, the homeowner at that time still being residential might've called us out there to take a look at a washout problem. And while they might need a few other things, 
it was much easier on the estimate to convey, hey, we are the specialists that can solve this kind of thing. And I understand there's going to be some other people bidding on those jobs. And I I get that. That's no problem. But just make sure they're going to be able to take care of these issues. And these are the kinds of materials that we use for this kind of problem and why these are the best. And you can explain yourself a lot better. And you now have a, I guess, a fabricated advantage on that bid. And I think that's really strong. Yeah, I call it domain authority. Like you become the specialist. Mm-hmm. You have the authority in that niche in your yep. area. And we've worked with countless company owners and smaller one, two, three-man crews. And when they finally get them to wrap their head around not being a general land service or excavation company and have a specific niche, it's usually six months. And they're like, I can't believe the growth. Yeah. You know, and, and my example is that the septic cake company has all the equipment to grade your driveway remove some trees in your backyard, but you never even think to call them for that type of work. Yep. And likewise, you don't think to call anybody else when you have a septic problem. Exactly. You call the septic company. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know if you run into this with, with other guys in your area, or like, especially guys starting out, but like, Hey, I got a skid steer. I can do some work for you. And I'm like, that's like a painter saying I have a ladder. Like the skid steer <laughs> is just a tool. Like it's yeah. not your, you know, like you're supposed to be providing solutions, not a tool. If you got a valid credit card, everybody's got a skid steer when you go to the rental store. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's like finding that niche is so important. And you've taken that niche and you've grown the heck out of it in a very short amount of time. So yeah. from 18 to 22, I mean, you've stayed in the storm or drainage industry. What have you like, what have you, what was your transition to where you are today? So there was a lot of things that happened in between the time frame that we're trying to condense into a phone call. But with the time that where I scaled from, I was I basically bulletproof. There were ups and downs, but I felt pretty bulletproof from zero when I was 15 to around 40 to 60,000 a month was a really great spot for me when I was, um, I guess I was later 18, early 19. And at that time where I wanted to, I got a bigger shop. I got a half acre lot in Marietta, which is a city near me and um, that I worked around. And it had a 3000 square foot building that I used as a laydown yard. And I immediately hired double the in-house staff. I still was using a couple subs at that time. And so I got another sub and I hired double the staff. So I had nine W2s and then two subcontractors running full-time. And so there was give or take 15 people running around. and. At that point, it was, it kind of fell apart because there was a lot of things I didn't understand that were significant that I was trying to push down and ignore, specifically being a salesman that I had hired that I just, I had been working so hard and I was working such long hours and Saturdays and Sundays and in the middle of the night moving equipment and just trying to keep up with everything. When I finally hired a couple of those, what I thought key positions, I didn't train anybody. He said that he was good to go. I let him do two estimates and then he was on his own. And that ended up being a Simon. He would basically just take the jobs and then say he was the owner because he was obviously old enough and it made sense. Take the deposits, block their number. And when I had to fire him six months later, going through his work phone, I realized there was about $50,000 of money that had been just siphoned out. And I was so strung out at that point doing about 80 to a hundred thousand dollars a month that I just, I mean, that's $20,000 a week or more. That's just flying around. And I didn't notice. 
And it was just one of those things where I, I saw a lot of red flags and I saw a lot of things that were going wrong and I didn't act on it because I was over leveraged and I was just, I beat myself into a corner, which is something I didn't want to do again. And then, so coming around circle, uh, when I was later 19, early 20, I wanted to just get out. I was really, I hired an ex-convict that ended up beating the snot out of one of my guys on a job site. And that was just, I, this, that's just a random fact, but it was that week that the same week, the engine in my skidster blew up because the guys didn't put any oil in it. So between that threatening a lawsuit and then 20 grand on an engine, I was just done. Forget it. I want to get out of construction. This industry doesn't work <laughs> like going, going through that thing. And telling myself that construction is not scalable and it's just this industry sucks and all that. And I I called up my original mentor and I said, Hey man, I want to get out of this thing. I'm selling everything. And I had a lot of the same equipment and a lot of the same trucks. I had a couple of dualies and trailers and equipment at that point. And then five W2s left. And so we ended up, I ended up selling everything to him. And through that contract, I had to maintain, I had like $150,000 of backlog that went with the deal and then just to make sure that the crews that I had running, you know, still kept and maintained through that merge, um, you know, using some of the knowledge I'd gotten prior when I originally sold the maintenance accounts. So we ended up doing that. And then six months later, I was doing all the sales because that was part of our contract and maintaining that. And it just blew up because his skill set was primarily in operations. He'd been around for a long time, um, but technologically, there just wasn't a lot there. And so I came in and my strength was sales and business development and things like that. And his strength was operations and it just blew up. And so, and that's now where we are now. So that went from, you know, 1.2 million hour pace to now we're bumping the three fifties and four hundreds every month. And uh, it's going, I don't see any end in sight. That's so, fantastic, man. Yeah. Yeah. You, you fell victim to the atypical business owner problem and, I went through it in my past businesses, which is why I didn't go through it this time. But we don't develop the right systems and processes in advance. And then we get so busy with the day-to-day -day that we just push off the tasks we don't want to do, but we don't fully train the people to do it. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's, it's, a, and, it, and, and for you, like you're lucky you had somebody that you could work with to help. I mean, I don't want to say bail you out, but I mean, like take that yeah. stress off your shoulders so you could see the light again, because it is like when it's black, it's black. Like you just feel like it's, you're the only one in the world that's going through these problems. And why is everything happening to me? And you have no, no ability to reflect and look backwards. And it sounds like you have now. And it was also a huge ego check at that point. Because I mean, to, you know, my answer to the question earlier, I bought my first kids because to be honest, I wanted to see my sticker on the side of the machine and say I had one. And at that point, I had never worked for anybody. I did, and, it, and not necessarily that I was an employee for the company. I mean, it was on a contractual basis, and it's not like anybody had a calendar for me every day. But it was one of those things to where I remember the day where we merged, and all of my guys showed up at their laydown yard, and every all my guys were taking off their company clothes and throwing all my tools into their trucks and taking, you know, answering to their foreman, and it was it was kind of a sad day to be honest. And looking back on it, I mean, I'm, I'm glad all that happened because I wouldn't have the knowledge I have now of how to work with someone with an alternative skill set and then add to that business and grow that business, which is what we're doing now with companies similar in the industry. But you just got to value. I mean, 
put a put an earmark on those kinds of hard times because it's it's the only thing that'll make you appreciate when it's good and the only thing that'll give you the knowledge to make it good. Yeah. Every every perceived failure, and I say perceived because I don't think anything in life's a failure because you're out doing something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just learning a way not that it doesn't work. So you can adapt and overcome and change your change your style. Yeah. 100%. So, so you just talked about just a minute ago, the companies you work with, and I kind of got the feel that like sure. you're not done with just one company. That's right. That's right. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the whole idea, I own a company called Adams and Alley that uh, it's a corporation that got formed earlier last year. And uh, this company was technically my first acquisition. And it's just me in this specific business that owns the actual equity in these businesses. You know, my partner is the one that I is uh, owns the other percentage of the company that I bought last year. However, the idea is to work with a very small amount of companies. This isn't something that is a mass scale work with 100 different people at the same time. But there are very specific companies that, you know, if you can do a handstand and patch your tummy and say the alphabet backwards, that's the kind of people we're working with. Um, it's very specific. And so there's a lot of guys that are in the stormwater industry that uh, primarily are doing dam reconstruction, culverts, uh, storm systems around neighborhoods in the failed space, not necessarily new construction, that if they just knew the right people to call and they knew the right kind of way to introduce themselves to engineers and property managers and the right person to hire at certain scale in the company, when to rent, when to save, how much cash they need in their account, if they knew all of those things at the you know five hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand, million dollar mark, that it would completely unbottleneck the company. And so, and again, I'm not looking to have these people give themselves away. I mean, it is an equity inject. It's a cash injection upon purchase. But the idea is to form a company that is a, I wouldn't say a conglomerate, but if they're in the similar location, primarily in the southeast. They can achieve economies of scale with the synergies that come from having just more resources spread out. And so as our jobs are getting farther and farther and farther, you know, let's say out of state being, uh, which I'm in Georgia. So, uh, you know, like Tennessee, Florida, Alabama, stuff like that. um, We've been getting offers to open up offices down there. But to be honest, I would prefer to work with a company that's down there already um, that already has 20 years of reputation and if they just knew the right things to do, could completely unbottleneck the company and, uh, and grow quite larger. And so now the company that I'm involved with right now, um, this is not a turn and burn kind of thing. Uh, these are very, these are long-term horizons. And so this company has already grown leaps and bounds. And with the same management team that we've built from one to three-ish million, which is really where that all forms up and where you have the finances to make that happen. The same exact management team with just a little bit of tweak could go probably around 10 to 15 million, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a couple uh, other mentors that are much larger than the people I'm involved with now um, that run $30 million companies or 70s. And there's one that's uh, knocking on 200 that I can call for questions. And um, they're all using the same systems, the same kind of uh, operating metrics that we've got, and which is where I derived a lot of it. Yeah, but that's been tremendously helpful. So, so I hear two things in this conversation. Mm-hmm. One, people are programmed to offer help when asked, which is how you get a mentor. You don't wait for them to call you; you call them, which mm-hmm. sounds like you've done a very good job with in your young career. 
and surrounded yourself with great people. And then two, you keep saying everyone's using the same system. So I like to, I like to refer to that as a framework. So yep. like the pieces in the framework can change a little bit, but I mean, you have to have framework, whether you're doing $50,000 a year in business or $50 million a year in business, you have to have a framework that you just have to have the rules and, you know, everyone's got a plan to get punched in the mouth. So when you get punched in the mouth, yeah. what's your, what's your plan? What's your framework? How do you get through this? What's the contingency plans? What's your process? And it's just key for any size business. I, even people doing work on the side, like they just do weekend work, like have your framework. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, did you, when you were younger, I mean, I guess I, I, even now, like you've got a larger company, you're looking at acquiring other companies. Do you know the values that you have individually and as a company? And do you try to pair the companies you want to partner with in the future to match those values? So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good fit and you don't have those, those value struggles as far as what's important to you and what's important to the other owner. Yeah, I think it goes two pronged. I mean, there is things that are said on on the ground as far as our crews go that in terms of completing a project, interfacing with customers. But I would say every single one of it, all of it revolves around honesty, integrity and humility, because I think if you have those qualities, then competency is huge. Obviously, if someone is incompetent, being they're just they're just not fit for the kind of role they're in, that is a big deal. But if they if that's the the bare minimum of just having someone that's competent, able to do the work, able to facilitate the things that you need, and then you pair those with, I guess, the the stars being the honesty, integrity, humility, that's a great way to filter someone you can work with. Because I do believe there's a lot of people that are willing to work, but there are fewer amount of people that are willing to work that have those qualities. Yeah. And so humility yeah. being the number one. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be able to take constructive criticism. You know, I've always been told that unasked for advice is criticism, but a lot of times if you are a manager or you're someone that has a team underneath them, whether it's being a foreman with guys on the ground or in the management team talking to the foreman, you have to be able to communicate. And if you take every piece of advice as criticism, it, it's very challenging to get anything done as a company. Yeah. And so I think we've done a really, really good job of manifesting that in our company. And a lot of the people that work with us, I believe if I made a phone call and said, Hey, here's what's happening. Here's the deal. And if we do this, I believe it'll fix it. Um, they're able to receive that and they're able to reciprocate what feedback they have. Because I think it goes both ways. I don't think top-down leadership where the person that's above that person is the only person that can say anything. I believe that is cancerous in a business. I think that getting into a roundtable meeting at least every once in a while and going over some of these things to where they can also comment on the management as well in a respectful way, of course, it helps everything come full circle and not just be a, you know, one person shooting at a wall. Yep. I agree. 10,000%. Um, larger companies with their management teams, you know, I really think you should have those open roundtable forums where everyone's opinions heard their concerns their pros their cons. Granted, the owner might make the decision and everyone understands and respects that because it's his mm -hmm. company, but they all know that they've been heard and they're not criticized for their difference of opinion. And then these smaller companies getting your young, your employees in, because those are going to be your leaders as you scale and grow. Absolutely. 
And if you never ask for their advice or opinion, then they'll only give you criticism when you do it wrong. Yeah. And then they start spreading rumors behind your back with everybody. And and, and then you get the just, cancer culture. Yeah. yeah. It just infects the whole badge apples. Yeah. So now your, your, your title is actually the CEO, correct? That's right. And then how many people are in the company that you're managing? We've got 25 people, 25 people. So as a CEO, like I'm sure you have a lot of day-to-day tasks to make sure the company moves forward and moves on. But do you put, your culture of the company pretty high on your priority list? Absolutely. hundred percent. And it, it comes and goes as far as the, the busyness day to day. I think the primary, the primary role of the CEO being the chief executive officer, I think the, the chief executive officer and the chief operations officer, which is my partner is they're they're on the same place. And so I think that is important. I manage the management team and he manages our operations director and everything below that, which is all of operations. And so originally when I thought of what would they, you know, an org chart per se, or what I like to call a responsibilities chart, um, I had the CEO above that when really that's not true. I think the CEO and the COO are actually right here. And especially in construction specifically, where it's super heavy on operational personnel, that you have to be completely congruent in those two roles. And so the data that I get from him from operations is what helps me manage the management team and interface with all of our larger customers mm-hmm. and keep all of that in line and then vice versa with me. And so I think my chief role outside of just making sure sales, office and finance is getting taken care of correctly and business development is being available to solve the most difficult problem in the company. So I don't think if you're in that position and you've got that team, that if you have every minute of your day just blocked on calendars for just trying to stay busy, I think when problems do come up, you need to be able to go at the drop of a hat and solve those difficult problems, whether it's with a customer, it's an interpersonal problem with an employee, or it's just some kind of issue that comes up that's complex that eventually works its way up to you. You've got to be able to have time and effort to be able to distribute at any point in the day. And so I think it's a very fluid thing. I don't think it's something that I stack myself with tasks all day, every day, but it's a balance of monitoring during the day and then solving the most difficult problem at hand. Yep. So we'll preface this by saying he would never remember this happening, but I live in Peoria, Illinois, and for a hundred years, this was Caterpillar's world headquarter. Yeah. And running into the CEO one day and just having a conversation at at a bar while we waited for our table for dinner, he basically, I asked him like, Hey, what's the key role of, you know, being the CEO of a fortune, what, 2010 company. Yeah. He's just like communicating the vision of the company and making sure that the culture allows your team to grow and have flexibility to make decisions. So it's not all on your shoulders. And then he says, if you do nothing else as a business owner, ensure the culture's correct so that the team isn't stifled and they can actually grow and find solutions and do the work. hundred percent. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And to hear that from a guy, you know, running, I mean, he's on board of directors for how many companies and he's got private security. And I'm like, yeah, like who am I to tell you you're wrong? And so, but I, I, I've, that has stuck with me ever since that time. It's just like, you know, don't get stuck doing the work. Get stuck building the framework and the culture for others to be successful in. 
Sure. And there's definitely stages to it. I mean, I know you work super heavily with uh, companies on the smaller aspects, which is fantastic, just giving people yeah. direction. And I'm sure you would agree. I mean, there, there's definitely a, a line where you have to cross at some point because when it, it's just you and you're, you know, sub a couple hundred grand a year just trying to get off the ground. I mean, you're the man, the myth, the legend at that point. So <laughs> it is. Uh, and, and just to just to take a minute on that, like even yeah. the guys that are solo operators, I still tell them, like, is your goal to stay that way or is it to be able to hire a few employees in a couple of years? Like, well, we want to hire and grow. I'm like, great. Then you need to start getting in the habit of like, having your pre-job meeting, even though it's just you, and your post-job meeting. What went right? What went wrong? What could have been better? And developing that communication framework, because when you hire employees, you're already going to be busy. And building that new habit of that communication pre, during, and post is not going to be a top priority because you're going to be so busy with work. But if it's already a habit you instilled when it's just you, it's going to be very easy to incorporate a few people into that same communication process. And if you've already got the system, then you can just hand it to the employee once they're hired. It doesn't have to be some new thing that comes out of existence. Right. But like we teach them to, we call them tailgate talks. Start your job, first five minutes, end your job, first five minutes, end of the day, five minutes. We had a plan. Did we stick to it? Did we have any issues arise? What went right? What went wrong? What took longer than expected? Why? And just asking those questions, you'll start seeing trends and you're like, okay, we need to adapt and change the way we we need to adapt and change the company we have that brings the gravel or we need to schedule it 30 minutes earlier because they're always 30 minutes late. You know, like, but if you don't talk about it and have those conversations and you just keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. And as you know, that is literally the definition of insanity. Yeah. Been there before. So <laughs> I think we uh, all have, I think everybody has. It yeah, we all have been. Um, so one of the other topics I really enjoy talking to guys with and maybe it's more prevalent to your past experience than it is your current experience. Marketing, like what did, what worked for you? What you know? Did you find a special area that you just said, "Hey, I'm going to go all in over here," or did you shotgun spread it out across different platforms? So originally, it, it's funny you ask that because I, I did a lot of pay per click advertising, and I was on a lot of different platforms uh, for the business at least early on in the residential area. But now that we're in bigger commercial, it's really not as big of a focus. We're working on developing new medias for this company that'll come out shortly, and I'm excited for those. But the way you advertise is very different. And so when I was originally getting started, I used Nextdoor when they were like before Nextdoor even had ads. And so I was running those and just, I had a personal account that I would post on it and comment on people's posts. And then I eventually got on Facebook a little while later, and then I hired someone to do a lot of our posts and then manage just a little bit of pay-per-click advertising. And at that point, like when we were doing, when I was doing less than $60,000 a month, there was a time where I was running between paying her $500 a month for to do the postings and manage my site that I built personally we were doing like $1,500 a month in advertising, which worked out pretty well, actually. We had, I didn't niche down in the area as well as I should have, but in terms of the amount of business that we got from those leads driving them to our website, it worked out really well, especially in residential. I think moving into commercial, it's a little bit different of a game because especially when you get into big ticket projects, especially stuff that's consistently in the six figures and bumping into the seven figures, in the six figures, there's almost no chance of them calling off an ad. It might add credibility to you. So if if they look you up and let's say an engineer is trying to get a board of directors to decide on three companies, if they look you up on the internet, it's important to have a presence. But 
not necessarily as important to have, you know, spending a ton on pay-per-click or things like that. It's more about a presence rather than a trying to get you to click on something so you buy a product. Because these those bigger kinds of projects are months and months or years sometimes of courting. And that's not something that's going to come off an advertisement. No, and you can't use general advertising that's made for the masses when you're only trying in your current situation, you know, looking for 100, 200 engineers or city planners. Mm-hmm. You need to be more focused and needs to be changed and all that. But like when you were younger and you were doing 20, 30, $40,000 a month. Yeah. Did you like you say, hey, every month we're going to use the next door app. We're going to use Facebook. We're going to use Google. We're going to do direct yes. mail. We're going to do email. Or do you say, you know what? I'm just going to use one and I'm going to get really, really good at it. I think, to be honest, I should have used one to get really good at it, which I'm still struggling with now, just getting personally on social media, trying to decide which way is the best way. But if I had to do it again, I think I would make an account. If I was just getting started again, what I'd say is I think you should make an account on all of them. And when I say that, you don't have to post on all of them, but when you have an account, and then to be really good at one of them. And so what what at least happened with me that helped out a lot, you know, I had my Google page, which you can get for free. And when someone looks you up, if you have accounts registered on all of them, then it'll come up all the way down Google in the entire first page. And so, again, I am marketing on pay-per-click is not my specialty. We have people that help us with that. And so I don't want to say something that I'm not you know, an expert sure. on necessarily. But from my personal experience doing that, it was great to fill up the whole first page on Google. And then Nextdoor and Facebook is really where we did a lot of advertising and um, and then as well as Google. But I think Google by far was the best for us. I mean, I would say almost by a long shot, most of the form submissions that we had come in on our website were all from Google. And if I had to, if I had to put the others on a pedestal for just providing presence, then Google definitely took the trophy for actually getting in form submissions. Yeah. So we find that like using that Google My Business and like making sure you take the time to set it up properly. Mm-hmm. Being very descriptive, answer the FAQs, have your holiday hours, be very long paragraph form in what you do. I mean, yeah, it sucks. You, you know, we're, you, we're, you guys run equipment all day. You don't sit at a computer. So it's an inconvenience, but it's a one-time job. Once you get that done, it just keeps working for you in the background. It's worth the mm-hmm. time investment. 100%. So like Google and then the reviews, that can work for you all the time. Where And I'm a firm believer like Facebook's great for getting instant work or starting an instant conversation. But nobody's going to go back. Nobody's going to find your ad from last month and call you on Facebook. You have to continually do new ones. Where yeah. Google, they could just, you know, hey, search for stormwater runoff, my area. Your company pops up. You've got 47 reviews. Hey, I'm going to go look at their website. They've been around the area for a while. That's not happening on Facebook. Hey, you're so going to go through a lot of conversations on Facebook Marketplace trying to get grading jobs. Yeah. A whole no, absolutely. Um, and there's, I mean, Google My Business is free. I, I trust every small business should have that presence and have it done right. And then if if you're sub 50, 60K a month, you should be pounding Facebook for new business and then asking them for the reviews so that you can build the organic stuff naturally without waiting for it to happen to grow your business. Mm-hmm. Is my opinion. I agree with that. And you can have a lot of sweat equity in that as well. I mean, without pay-per-click advertising, if you're just hustling on Facebook, you can generate a lot of business. It takes a lot of work, but you can generate a lot of business for free. Yeah, and you can't believe the people that are doing it. 
I hear all the time. I had this guy call me up and he was like, yeah, I've been watching your videos on Facebook for the last six months. I'm ready to have you come give me an estimate. So it's a, it's just the consistency of your posts. Yeah. What you do, awesome. how you do it, the values that your company has. Um, but I always think like marketing is always that one area that a lot of smaller businesses struggle with. And so I just like to always get the perspective of everyone on, on, on the show, just like what worked for you to help you scale and grow. And I also think just seeking out information that's valid from a valid source. And I, I think I'm a firm believer in exhausting all of your free resources before you start spending a ton of money. But I do believe in education up front. And so I know you offer a service like that. And for me, it was just calling the sides of trucks and sitting down with people. But especially for a reasonable price, if you can have someone just grab you by the shoulders and point you in the right direction at yeah. least for a little while, you know, you can walk 500 miles in the wrong direction and you still walk to the same distance. But if you're pointing in the right direction, it can make all the difference and you can mitigate a lot of stupid mistakes early on. You're absolutely right. And like our coaching program, we, we we're seeing a lot of success for the last year or so with the clients that joined that and helping them scale and grow their business and be on the right track. But I also will preach to everybody, Mike, if you're not comfortable investing in that, go talk to other business owners. And I'm telling you, if you open your ears and close your mouth, you can talk to the owner of a beauty salon and you will find out something she is doing to get people interested in her services that you can say, oh, I can maneuver that and make it work for excavation by doing this. Yeah. Most of the things we do at Skid Steer Nation for our marketing did not come from marketing skids to your attachments, looking at other companies that do that. It came from looking at other successful companies in other industries and other niches and wondering how did they do that? And then asking them, and because I'm not a competitor, they were very open with me what they do and how they do it. And I was able to take that maneuver it, switch it and make it work for what we do for our business. Absolutely. But there's lessons everywhere. If you're just open to looking for them. It's a blue ocean. Yeah, I just, I actually just was watching YouTube and this video popped up and he was showing you how to make 200 grand a year making videos with AI software and this video editor. And I'm like, oh yeah, another gimmick thing, right? And as I was watched it for a few minutes and I was like, I could use that same framework that he's using for that to actually describe some of our products better in short YouTube videos and TikToks. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Again, you can't out of it at least. Yeah. I found some guy trying to, you know, sell his software of how to teach you this strategy. And I'm like, oh, I can maneuver that and make it work for me. Where if I was closed minded, I would have been like, well, he's an idiot and just turned it off. Yeah. You can definitely pull something from everybody. Yeah. A hundred percent. Nuggets lying around everywhere. And I've actually learned a lot more by talking to the people who so-called failed because those are the lessons that matter most like what not to do it's like you did you know like you'll never hire another salesman and not train him and vet him yeah the, ne the ne next time around it was very different process <laughs> <laughs> exactly it was a very short leash for a long time yeah exactly man yeah. but you so, can't wait forever so. <laughs> yeah um god just to kind of recap here you had a want for a vehicle that got you out in the public looking for ways to make money that just continued to snowball and grow year after year and lead you into heavy equipment. And then you found your niche between your mentors and your market area. And now you're able to take that 
niche, continue to learn and develop your business acume and continue to grow and modify that so that you can scale and grow that outside of your current area. Absolutely. And we did that in seven years. 100%. And uh, excited for the future. And That's I think, crazy. I, I think construction is, and one thing to add, I mean, to that, um, I'm, and we'll probably close soon, but I think there's a lot of people that are leaving construction on a big level. And I think of the majority, if there's a hundred people that are graduating school, the majority of them are not thinking about getting into heavy equipment and excavation and just the dirt world in general. And I think podcasts like this are important and just people that are on social media, because I think as a whole, this industry isn't as savvy as a lot of others, like real estate or tech or anything like that. And as people are looking to find ways to make money online and this, that, and the other, and go into those different categories of business, construction gets overlooked because it's not pretty, I guess, but in terms of scalability, I don't know of any other industry that sells higher ticket items. And, you know, you can be a real estate agent and sell houses, but you're getting a little percentage. And it's also, you can't sell a real estate agency. I mean, I'm sure you can, but not as an individual number. And so construction, you can fit a multi-million dollar company inside one project. Yeah. And I personally don't know of any other industries to where you can do that. And obviously you can't just go from zero to that because there's a lot of learning curves in between. But in terms of getting something off the ground and then going to the sky, once you start getting into this situation where you can get those six-figure jobs and now we're knocking on the seven-figure jobs, I mean, you can fit a massive company into a very short period of opportunity, which I think is an important thing to understand. No, and, and it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And just to kind of comment on that, like you talk about the tech savvy aspect of that. I don't think it's because of the operators and business owners in the industry. I mean, I'm 45 and, you know, Facebook and phones and apps are part of my everyday life. And I'm sure it is about everybody else, even at our age. I think the biggest hurdle we face in this industry is like if I'm a small business in Peoria, Illinois, and I'm looking to, for somebody to help me do my marketing and sales, I can't find a company that understands the industry. So now I have to teach them. And that becomes such a road, just such a wall that we don't do it. We don't learn yeah. it because nobody gets what we do or how we do it. And we don't get what they do. And we just can't find that middle ground to be able to be cohesive and work together. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. Yeah, it does. But I mean, you can find a local marketing company, like a guy in Tennessee finds a local marketing company and the girl comes out and she's like, oh, this thing's really cool. How's it work? What's it do? What can you do with it? And you're like, you're supposed to be generating me leads and interest. I'm not supposed to be teaching you what a skid steer is like. Yes, I 100% agree with you. Yeah, and that's the gap for our industry is that it's hard to find tech professionals that understand and get what we do. And we spend that time talking and teaching them and it feels like we're getting nowhere. So we just quit. Yeah. We'll and go I back think to the word of mouth. And you just start blaming the internet doesn't work and yeah. you can't trust anybody. And it's a whole, it's a whole road. So it is pretty cool that people like you are coming around and specializing in that because it's just, it's not something that I've seen a whole lot of. And I think it's saturated everywhere else, but construction. And there's a heck of a lot of need for it. Yeah, there really is. I mean, you look at GPS technology, how far behind agriculture was behind construction. And now I would almost say agriculture is ahead of construction with GPS. 
they've got some pretty crazy stuff now. Right. But 15 years ago, like you couldn't get a farmer to put that on his tractor. Yeah. And now they won't buy it without it. Yeah. They just, you know, they saw the value. Like, oh, I, how many more bushels do I get per acre with this? And I, I can get so. And it's the same thing with this industry. We just got to we just got to work with them. And, and you'll find as this younger generation becomes the norm, you'll see more and more businesses treat it like a real business that has their brick and mortar website. And that's why I call them brick and mortar websites because you don't have a store they can walk into and be a little bit more tech savvy as the, as the mm-hmm. older crowd that never had that growing up starts to retire and get out of the industry. It makes a huge difference if you can get it figured out. Yeah, or it sure does. They can. Yeah, well, Reese, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day and uh, joining us for the podcast, sharing your story and your your advice. It's very wise advice if I want to go back to that old adage of how young you are. But at the same point, you have put the work in. You have found the mentors. You have done the the, the research and homework to, to get to this level in your life. And, um, you know, at age is probably not a number for you anymore. It's now it's just business acumen and surrounding yourself with the right network. And you are definitely doing that. So congratulations for everything you've accomplished. I'm excited to continue to watch you grow and see where you take this thing in the next five, 10, 20 years. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the show. And if there's anything I can, you know, I can do or anybody that can take anything out of this, I hope you can go make a bunch of money with it. And yeah. And I just want to say real quick, if if you are on Facebook and you search mm-hmm. his name, Reese Alley, he also has a private Facebook group where he just pulls his phone out, shoots some videos, answers questions, and uh, just he's offering free advice for people in this industry to help grow their business. Absolutely. I hope you all can get something from it. Absolutely agrees. Well, we appreciate it. And um, everyone here listening, again, just to recap, we need you to subscribe to the podcast so we know you're watching it. We know that our work and effort is paying off and you're enjoying the content. Please share it. That's how we grow our end of it. And as Reese was mentioning earlier, finding mentors and uh, investing in knowledge is a very key part of growing your business. And that's why I just want to remind you all that groundbreaking growth is the new business that Skid Steer Nation is a part of. We just recently launched it. It is a business development program where we work in three phases, define, profit, and scale. So who you are, what you do, why you do it, how to make a lot of money doing that, and then how to scale and grow the company to the level you want it to be. So if you'd like to learn more about that, go to groundbreakinggrowth.com. There's a submission form there if you'd like to get on a phone call and talk with me. So it will not be another salesperson. It will actually be myself. So thanks everyone for listening and tuning in. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Skid Steer Nation podcast.